All right, Romans chapter 12. I have two verses for you. So it'll be a real quick reading. We'll just be reading verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And we'll stop there. So as I like to do when we get to a new section in the book of Romans, as I've done in the past, uh, I'd like to just do a very, very brief emphasis on brief uh, recap of where we are in Romans thus far. Just kind of get a lay of the land, you know, sort of like when you are... Well, when malls were big and people used to go to malls all the time and they made these big malls and you would kind of get lost, you always want to find that map that has a little dot on it that says you are here. So you can know, okay, now I know where I need to go. So where we are in Romans is, first of all, Romans, as we've said many times before, is all about the gospel. It is a detailed exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul was a man who was called by God to be an apostle. Not just to the Gentiles, but an apostle of Christ for the gospel. That was his calling, to bring this message of hope into a dark world. Now, if Romans is all about the gospel, then the gospel is all about, as he will say later in Romans chapter 1, the righteousness of God, because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. We see this righteousness set in contrast to the unrighteousness of mankind in Romans 1 Uh, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, where we looked at the sinfulness of mankind. We've seen the righteousness of God imputed to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul then goes on to show how we are saved by the propitiation that is provided for us in Christ in Romans 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5. Then we've seen this righteousness of God imparted to us through the Holy Spirit, By the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, as we've seen that in Romans 6 through 8. And then finally, we've seen the righteousness of God vindicated in Romans 9 through 11, as Paul goes to great lengths to explain how the gospel of God has not failed. The word of God has not failed. The Jewish people are not finally and fully rejected, but there will be a great uh, harvest of souls at the end of the age. A uh, great number, the, the, the coming, the sort of the fulfillment of the elect of the Jewish people will come in at the end of the age. That's what I've been arguing, at least. And then Paul finishes Romans 11 then with a word of praise as he breaks out in praise in doxology for all of the unsearchable and unfathomable ways of God. And as we said last time at the end, doctrine, the teaching, leads to praise, doxology, which then leads to duty. So there's an aspect of the gospel or the righteousness of God that must be practiced. We see this in a couple of passages in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes there, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So there is an aspect of the gospel that 
requires good works, not to be saved, but as a result of being saved, not to earn righteousness, but to sort of work out the righteousness that has been imputed to us. James chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, James writes, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, is James contradicting Paul? What do you think? Is James contradicting Paul? No, James is not contradicting Paul because he's using the word justified in a different sense. But here he says a man is justified or vindicated by works, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Martin Luther said we are saved by grace through faith, by alone, but not by faith that is alone. We have to have good works. So if the gospel hasn't changed you, then we can wonder if the gospel has saved you. So again, doctrine leads to doxology, leads to duty. Now, I know that you know that good works don't save. And I know that you know that good works are the demonstration of thankfulness and gratitude to God. I know that you know that. Because I'm sure you've been taught that by the previous ministers who have served here. I've taught this, so and you've probably were catechized in that way. So I know that you know this. Now, since I know that you know this, why do I belabor the point? You're probably thinking the same thing. Why are you belaboring the point? We know this. Let's move on. Well, because repetition reinforces these lessons in our hearts and our mind. The Bible doesn't just say things once most of the time. Right? We have four Gospels. Why do we have four Gospels? Right? Or, you know, Paul writes about, you know, know, salvation by grace through faith and the propitiation is in Jesus Christ in several places. Why does he repeat himself? Why does God repeat himself? Because we are still fallen creatures, even though we are redeemed by grace, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are still in this unredeemed flesh. And we still struggle with sin, the flesh, and the devil. So we need these constant reminders to focus ourselves, to keep us on track so that we don't get off track. Satan tries to get us to forget these lessons. And again, one of my favorite verses on good works is found in Paul's letter to the Philippians in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where, again, Paul writes to the Philippians, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this idea of duty can be seen essentially as our working out what God has worked in us. God has worked in us. You know, we, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, so we are already perfectly righteous, perfectly holy in that sense from an imputed sense, from a declarative sense. In God's eyes, he looks at us and sees us as holy. But then we are now to work that out in our lives. So we have a position that says we are holy, righteous, and just because we have been declared holy, righteous, and just. But now we have to sort of make our practice match our position. We have to make our our behavior match our calling in a sense. So we work out what God has worked into us. And I think our own Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32 has one of the best, in my opinion, responses to the questions of, to the question of good works. 
where in question 86 it asks, Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? It's an honest question, right? I think it's a good question. We're saved. Why do we need to do these good works? Well, the catechism will give us four reasons. Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, so that we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us, also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. So the question and answer begins the section on thankfulness in the catechism. And the answer, like I said, gives us four reasons for good works. The first is that to show our thankfulness to God. Thank you, God, <laughs> that you have saved me. Thank you that you have called me out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan, and brought me into the kingdom of his dear son. Thank you for being the propitiation for my sins so that now I can stand justified in your sight. Thank you. And now let me show my love for you by being obedient. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So thankfulness to God. Our good works glorify God. That's what Jesus says. He says, let your light shine in the world so that the, so that the world will see and give glory to God. Good works also assure us of our faith. Again, as I, as I said earlier, if you haven't been changed by the gospel, maybe you haven't been saved by the gospel. So the gospel doesn't just say, okay, you have a get out of hell free card. It changes your life so that you now walk in newness of life. So you, and, it, and then by doing so, by these good works, and also then give you the assurance that you have in fact been saved. And then also, as the catechism says, winning others to Jesus. Our good works, our good conduct, our, our obedience to God, our obedience to the word is a way to win others also to Christ. Now, any one of these is sufficient enough to warrant our obedience. But when you take together, I think it's an airtight case that we need to do good works. Again, not to be saved, but to demonstrate these four things. So as we come here to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, most scholars will see the section starting here in chapter 12, verse 1, going all the way to 15, verse 13, as sort of containing the practical application of Romans. And, it's, and if that's true, and I believe it is, then here, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I think form the foundation from which all of this practical application flows out. This is the starting point. This is the base camp. This is the, you know, where you begin to, to you know, the, the, the foundation for our obedience to God. Now, there are a lot of imperatives or commands in Romans 12 through 15. But again, they all start from this point in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Whether that's exercising our spiritual gifts in the context of the church, whether that's behaving out of an attitude of love and humility, whether that's submitting to the governing authorities, or whether that's exercising love toward the weaker brother. They all flow from the Christian who sees himself or herself as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to God for his rich mercies. Okay, so as we look now at this passage, 
two verses, I broke it up into four sections. And the first one, if you've got your hand out there, is an apostolic urging in the first half of verse 1. So then, of course, the very first words from Paul here in Romans 12 is the word, therefore. And that's one of my favorite words, right? Because, <laughs> you know, it, it gives me the, the excuse to say the silly sayings, like, what's the therefore, therefore? You know, well, the therefore is there to point us back to everything he has said, where he says in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. So here, in that word, therefore, Paul is gathering up everything, everything that has been written to this point, to make a plea, to make a plea. The fact that we are justified by the imputation of the righteousness of God, the fact that we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit to work out the righteousness of God, the fact that everything is said and done so that we will be glorified to be, to be the righteousness of God. And the fact that the righteousness of God has been vindicated in the salvation of Jews and Gentiles alike. All of this is wrapped up in that word, therefore. Now, if you remember back in Romans 8, I said once we got done with Romans 8, we really got done with the sort of the doctrinal application or teaching that Paul has. And that verse, you know, chapters 9 through 11 were like an excursus. But here again, when he gets to, to Romans 12, that therefore is inclusive, not just of Romans 9 through 11, but of everything from the beginning of the letter. So he makes this plea, and it's a plea that is based on the mercies of God. Now, I took the, the liberty of, because we're only doing two verses, you're going to get a lot of word studies today. <laughs> Because how do you flesh out two verses except by doing word studies? So again, that word mercy here, it's an interesting word. It's not the usual word for mercy. Um, it's the word here is oiktirmos. The usual word for mercy is eleos, which speaks of mercy or pity or compassion. So that word is kind of like the flip side of grace. So grace and mercy are like two sides of the same coin, uh, where grace is giving to us what we do not deserve, Mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. So God, in his mercy, withholds from us that which we do deserve, which is wrath, anger, judgment, justice. But God is merciful. He does not visit those things upon us. He puts those things upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, who on the cross bore that wrath, bore that judgment in our place. But this word here, now there's synonyms. Don't, you know, when I... You know, when I say it's not the usual word, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean mercy. It's just it's a synonym. We have words that, you know, different words that kind of have meanings that overlap a great deal. And, and these two words are synonymous. But this word here that we see mercy in uh, verse 1 is more speaks of the compassion of God. Okay, more of the compassion. So whereas the first one more like the mercy and pity, this one's more of the compassion. Because it was the compassion of God that sent his son to die for us, even though we were sinners, even though we were enemies. Right? Romans 5. And it is the mercy or compassion of God that was on full display in Romans 3 through 11. When we looked at that whole section, particularly when you consider our sinful state as Paul outlines it in Romans 1 through 3. We see the mercy of God on full display from the justification, the sanctification, and all of that. So because of these mercies of God that he has shown us, Paul then urges us. 
He implores us, he pleads with us to act. And that word also urge, if you have the New King James, you probably have the word beseech. If you have an ESV, you might have the word appeal. It has the same kind of meaning. It's the word parakaleo. That's used 105 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 50 times. And it carries several meanings. Uh, it's the word that we, it's the word that is when you take it in the noun form is used of the Holy Spirit in John uh, in the up in the um, upper room discourse where John in chapters 14 through 16 I'm going to send you the Helper I'm going to send you the Paraclete the Paracleto the one who comes alongside of you so that word can mean to call or summon it can mean to comfort or encourage it can also mean to admonish or exhort which is what our context is here. So Paul is summoning all of his apostolic authority and then calls us to act. He exhorts us. He admonishes us. He pleads with us to act on the motivation that is provided by the mercies of God. And this is the Christian life. It's not just knowing the right things, but acting on that knowledge. Put another way, again, if our Christian faith and profession doesn't motivate us into proper obedience, and are we even really Christians? And if we contemplate, even for a moment, the mercies of God, doesn't that make you want to step out in thankful service to Him? And if we don't do that, then we have a dead, not a living faith, as James will say. Your faith is dead. Your faith is useless. If your faith doesn't motivate you to act If your faith doesn't produce good works, you have a dead faith. So God has done so much for us in Jesus Christ, that ought to light a fire under any true believer. Right? Again, doctrine leads to doxology, leads to duty. We learn the truths, what God has done for us, that leads us to praise, and then out of thankfulness for what he has done, we moved to act. So that is the apostolic urging. Now we look at the second half of verse 1, where we see an acceptable presentation. So what is this action here that Paul urges upon us? Well, the second half of verse 1 says, To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now some of your translations may be, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Actually, I do prefer the living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God. Um, The Greek is a little ambivalent or ambiguous in how to translate that uh, exactly. But here Paul urges us to present our bodies. And again, that word present, we've seen it before. Uh, Peristemi, it means to place beside, to present, to provide, to stand beside. And in a worship context, this word is used to express the actions of presenting an offering, of presenting an offering. But unlike Old Testament worship, in which the person presented a goat or a lamb or a bull, or if they were really poor, a turtle dove or some kind of bird, here Paul urges us to present ourselves. Now again, we've seen this word, peristemi, or present, in Romans before, when we were going through Romans chapter 6. In verses 13, verses 16, verses 19, Paul uses this word five times in those three verses where he says, and do not go on presenting. 
the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Or again in verse 16 of chapter 6, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And again, finally, in verse 19 of chapter 6, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, if you recall, when we were looking at Romans 6, it was in the context of the fact that because of our union with Christ, We are now dead to sin, just as Christ died to sin, and now we are alive to God. Or we are now freed from sin, and we become slaves of righteousness. And because of these truths, then we are no longer to present the members of our body, the parts of our body, to sin to obey its lusts. Rather, now we are to present the members of our body to God as a slave of righteousness, as one who is been made alive to God as one who has been freed from sin. Now, again, this is all in the context of of our sanctification. And it was Paul's answer in Romans 6 to the question that he starts off that chapter with, where he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Right? In chapter 5, he says, as sin abounded, grace abounded more to cover that sin. So then Paul's, you know, imaginary uh, opponent that he was arguing with says, okay, well then let's sin so that grace increases. And Paul's like, you can't do that. <laughs> that's not how this works. Okay. It's, it, you know, that's not a call then to go sinning, you know, because you've got the get out of hell free card. So again, that was all in the context of our sanctification. But here, this is in the context of worship, of service to God. And he says here, we are not to just present the members of our bodies. We are to present our bodies. This is the whole person, everything, our whole selves. Now go up on the altar, just as the lamb or the goat or the bull was presented on the altar. We are now on the altar. We present ourselves to God as a service of worship. And again, in Old Testament worship, Uh, particularly when you're looking at the burnt offering in Leviticus 1, the whole animal was consumed in in the operation of that sacrifice. The animal was slain, and then it was put on the altar, and it was burned, and the whole thing was consumed in fire. In contrast, we are now, because of the mercies of God, to present ourselves, to offer ourselves now, as a living sacrifice. And that emphasis on living has several connotations. First, with the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, the Old Testament sacrificial system of offering up dead animals was fulfilled. And it became obsolete. So, and secondly, since Christ was raised from the dead, as Paul says, then we too might walk in newness of life in Romans 6, 4. And then the third implication or connotation is that now that we too have been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, we now continually offer ourselves 
as a living, not a dead, sacrifice to God. Again, that animal was slain and then it was offered up. We are not killed. <laughs> we are, we've been raised spiritually from the dead. And then we too now offer ourselves daily to God. Not as sacrifices to atone for sin. That's already been done. That was what Christ did. That's why the Old Testament sacrificial system was fulfilled. We no longer offer animals to atone for our sins, but we do so as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The writer of Hebrews, whether you think that's Paul or not, the writer of Hebrews says, through him, that is Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That's Hebrews 13, 15. So we are to see our duty to God for his mercy to us as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving, a holy sacrifice that is one set apart for, for service to God. And then this is a sacrifice that is, that is acceptable to God or well-pleasing to God. And again, in, uh, in the Old Testament context of worship, when that animal was burned on the altar, the smoke would rise up. And then that smoke would metaphorically rise up into the heavenly temple, into God's heavenly temple, and then it would produce a pleasing aroma. If that sacrifice was offered appropriately, it would produce a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so, too, we are to be pleasing aromas of living sacrifice of thanksgiving and gratitude to our Lord. And this, Paul says, is our spiritual service of worship. Now, Again, this is one of those interesting translations where that word spiritual is not the word you would normally see for spiritual. It's the word logikos, which means reasonable or rational. And in fact, your Bibles may even have a translational footnote that says reasonable or rational service of worship. But the idea basically is that given all that God has done for us, it is reasonable. It is rational that we then respond with a whole life dedication to God. That's verse one. <laughs> verse two. So we, the third part here is the first half of verse two, where we see now a non-conforming attitude. So in verse one here, Paul now calls the Christian on the basis of the mercies of God to live lives of dedicated service to God as our appropriate worship to God. This dedicated service is of the whole person, Everything in our lives going forward is to be dedicated to the worship of God. Now, this kind of service, this level of dedication now calls us to be different from the world. Right. If we are living lives like this of whole life dedication to thanksgiving and worship of God, we are going to be different. Right. I think just by default, we are going to be different. That's why Paul says here in verse 2, the first half, and do not be conformed to this world. So Christians are to have a non-conforming attitude. We are to be non-conformist. Now, if you remember the 60s, I was born in the 60s, but some of you may have remembered the 60s a little better than I do. But the idea there of the 60s, it was the cool thing to be non-conformist, right? All the young people were rebelling against their parents, their teachers, their society, to be nonconformist. We are not like the old generation. 
Well, it was all the cool thing in the 60s to be a nonconformist. Well, Christians are sort of like the original nonconformists. We were nonconformists before it was cool to be a nonconformist. And the Christian is to be in the world, not of the world. John, him, uh, Jesus himself prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17 to, the, to God, the Father. He says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We're spiritual. We're not earthly anymore. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're not of this world. We're in this world. And Christ then prays to the Father to keep us from the power of the devil while we're in this world. We are the church militant. We learned that uh, last Sunday night. We are the church militant. We are fighting a spiritual warfare. We're not of this world, but we are in this world. The Christian is to be holy. And that means not only morally upright, but sanctified as holy to the Lord, as someone separated for the service of God. Again, in the, in the Old Testament context of worship, the utensils, all the, the clothing, the, the incense that was offered in worship, the, the ointments and the perfumes, all those things were marked holy unto the Lord. Not because they were special, but, but they were set apart for the act of worship, which was why Nadab and Abihu were slain because they offered up an impure fire. They worshiped in a way not according to the word of God. They didn't use the right substances or what have you. We are to be holy, set apart, separate in the world and not of the world. So then when Paul here says, do not be conformed, again, that's an interesting word there, conformed, suskematizo. Don't let me say that too many times fast, but it's a compound word, and the base word is schema, which we get scheme, okay? And it means a figure or a fashion. And the idea that Paul is trying to communicate here with this phrase is to not allow the world to shape you. To not allow the world to force you into its mold. Okay? Do not let the world force you into its shape, into its mold. Do not let the, for- the world conform you. The Christian is not to be like the world, to look like the world, or as we'll see shortly, to think like the world. You are holy, you are set apart, you are dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. To be shaped by the world is not congruous with your new life in Christ. And again, that word world, that's an, another interesting word because it is, as we've seen so far, is not the usual word for world. The usual word for world that you see in the New Testament is the word cosmos. Now, it has a range of meanings. It can mean the world as in our globe. It can mean the world as in you know, the, all the people in the world. It can mean the world as in all of creation. Um, but here the word that Paul uses is the word ion or eon which means an indefinite period of time, an age, or eternity. It's it's a word often you see used in the New Testament when you see the word translated as eternity. But it can also mean this present age. And that's the point Paul is using here. He says, do not let this present age shape our thoughts and actions. Now, this can and does change from age to age, right? I mean, when you say this present age... That can change depending on when you're talking about the present age. But there is always something in the world that attempts to infect and shape the way Christians think and act. There is always some force in the world that attempts to force you into its mold. 
80 years ago, it was the ideas of liberal Christianity that brought rationalistic, anti-miracle, anti-Bible thinking into the, into the church, that the Bible contains errors, that the miracles are not really, they're legendary, that Jesus that you see in the pages of scripture is not the Jesus of history. 40 years ago, it was the ideas of the sexual revolution or the ideas of socialism or the ideas of radical feminism. And today it's the ideas of the radical LGBTQ plus agenda or the agendas of social justice or the agenda of the radical gender theory that you see going around. The point is it doesn't matter what it is, it's that in any age there's going to be something, some anti-God, some anti-Christ, some anti-biblical ideology or way of thinking that is going to press in against you and try to change you and shape you and take you away from the biblical worldview. But Paul is saying here that the Christian is not to go with the flow. We don't get along to, to we don't go along to get along. To which you might say to me, well, this opens us up to persecution. Yes. <laughs> yes, it will. It will. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I know you know this. <laughs> but for the people who, who are listening, who aren't here, for their benefit, if you think coming to Christ is going to make your life splendid and peachy keen and that it would be all rosy and and peaches and ice cream and candy and you know rainbows and sunshine i'm sorry to tell you that is not the case if you live a godly life you will be persecuted james 4 4 you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god Christians going to we're diametrically opposed. You can't you can't have a mixed loyalty. You can't be part of the world and part God because that doesn't work. You know, Husker fans, you can't <laughs> you can't like Kansas. You can't like Oklahoma. You can't like Texas. It just doesn't work that way. And for myself, you know, I'm a Bears fan. There's, ain't no way you're going to get me to like the Packers. I'm, I'm sorry, Delary. I know you're a Packers fan, but there is no way you're going to get me to like the Packers. I'm a Bears fan. We, we are at enmity. <laughs> okay. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, we are not to go with the flow. We are nonconformist. We are to have a nonconformist attitude that runs counter to the present spirit of the age. And now finally, in the last half of verse 2, a transformed mind. Well, again, you might ask, the spirit of the age is constantly changing. The, pole, the goalposts keep moving. How can I make sure that I remain a nonconformist? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question. Paul answers it in the last half of verse 2. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In order to not be conformed, we need to be transformed. Again, this idea of transformation, another interesting word. It's the word from which we get metamorphosis. We are to be changed. We are to be transformed. We have our form changed. And this word is used four times in the New Testament, twice in the Gospels, to speak of Jesus' transfiguration. He was metamorphosisted. <laughs> when he was changed, in a, you know, he... The, 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 the layer of humanity was peeled back 
And the glory of, of the unveiled glory of Christ was allowed to shine forth for a brief moment. And the three disciples that were there, Peter, James, and John, were able to glimpse this. He was transformed. And Paul uses it twice. He uses it here in, in Romans 12, and he also uses it in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And in that context, it speaks of us as being transformed into the glory of the Lord, being conformed into the image of Christ as we are transformed from one glory to the next glory, from one level of glory to the next. We are being transformed, changed. But here in uh, Romans 12.2, Paul is saying that in order to not be conformed, to this age, we need to be transformed in our minds. We need to be metamorphosed in our mind. Maybe that's probably the better way than metamorphosis. But, anywho. And the mind here that Paul is talking about is the center of intellect, the center of reasoning, the center of our understanding. And something, as I like to say, is that in order to act right, we first need to think right. We need to have our minds renewed. We need to have our minds remade, reborn, regenerated. Because it is the mind that controls the will, which is the center of decision making, which then controls our actions. So you've got mind, will, and then our hands or our actions that come forth out of that. If you renew the mind, the rest follows. Now, the unbelieving world is trapped in sin and debauchery because of the fall. They have futile minds. They have darkened minds. And that's how our minds were before we were reborn, before we were remade, before we were renewed and regenerated. We had darkened minds. We had futile understandings. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, speaking to Christians, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. So the unbeliever walks with a futile mind, a darkened heart, a darkened understanding, and they are unable to do the things that please God. But then Paul will later go on to say in verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians 4, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So put off the old man, put on the new man. So how do I renew my mind? That's another great question. You guys are full of great questions this morning. That's a great question. John 17, 17, again, the high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You kind of knew this is where I was going, right? The word. Uh, and then the best one, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Now that's used to speak mostly, primarily, of the inspiration of Scripture. But because Scripture is inspired by God, it is profitable. It is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the reason why this is a God-breathed book is because it is useful. It is profitable in our training, in our correction, in our reproof, so that we can renew our minds as we focus and learn and, and read our Bibles and meditate on our word and hear the word read and preached to us and taught to us. 
And the purpose of our transformed and renewed minds is that we can prove what the will of God is. So a renewed mind now is able to test or to try or to discern the will of God. But not so the natural man, right? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is not a question of, you know, the, the, the natural man reads the Bible, like, I don't understand these words. That's not what he's saying. It's like, I don't understand the meaning. I don't understand why this is important. I understand why I need to shape my life according to these words. Because I read it, it's, it's foolish. That's what the natural man says. But the renewed man, the man with the, or the woman with the renewed mind is able to read these things, to discern these things, and to be instructed by these things, and to then go out and do good works. Well, that's it. Next time. Uh, but here, as I said earlier, uh, this passage here, verses 12, 1 through 2, or chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, is the starting point for all of the practical application that will follow after this. As I said, it's the base camp from which we, our Christian living flows. And it all starts with a life that is dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. And then it's followed by an attitude that rejects the pattern of thinking of this age, all of which then begins with a transformed and renewed mind. Now, just one final comment on that being transformed. That's a passive, okay? I don't get up one morning and say, okay, I need to transform my mind. That is something that is, that is worked in you as you are regenerated, as you are reborn, your mind then is transformed. It has been renewed. Now next time, Lord willing, uh, May 2nd, next Sunday, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8 and see how Christians are to interact with one another in the use of their spiritual gifts.